0: The following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. I had the opportunity uh, yesterday to uh, teach a seminar at my sending church, Grace Community Church. I was supposed to do it with John MacArthur Uh, He's had a little bit of a health issue, so he bailed on me, and uh, to my disappointment, it was just me. But we were working through God's design for men and women. I preached an hour and ten minutes on women, and an hour and two minutes on men, and I will not do that to you today uh, with your children present. So, but I did want to exhort you and encourage you in one manner, (coughs) as we were talking about the transgender thing, and everybody changing pronouns, and expectations that workplaces are putting on their employees... I wanted to encourage you this way, okay? I know that because you're strong believers, that when you go to work, you work harder than anybody, you are ethical, you're upright, you say what you mean, you mean what you say, you tell the truth, you're just the kind of employee that nobody wants to lose. And I want you, if you could, and let me encourage you to declare yourself now. Say things like, I believe that God's ways are the best ways. Say things like, I think that God created two sexes and that's all there is. Say that out loud. Say that in light of, now if you're a bad employee, you're lazy and you're a bum, don't say that. Okay, but if you're a good employee and people, you know, enjoy you as a fellow worker, then declare that up front. Very important that you do that now. So that when the company or the corporation or the authorities begin to go, okay, now you have to approach it this way. You've got to use these pronouns. And if you don't, we're going to fire you. They know already in advance they're rejecting you. Does that make sense? That they, you've already declared yourself. If you haven't declared yourself, it's no big deal. And you say, well, you should have said something, you know. And, and now you've got to you know, defend yourself and make an issue out of it. You should say it up front, So before they even put that policy in place, they know where you're at, because you as a church believe this book, amen? Amen. And this book teaches two sexes, male and female, he and she, and those are the only pronouns you need, all right? And uh, that's what we were talking about yesterday, and I want you, if you would, to open your Bibles, if you're not there already, to Galatians chapter 4. If you're new with us, we're working our way, verse by verse, through this particular letter, and we find ourselves in Galatians 4, and... By God's providence, I'm so excited. With your kids being with us today, this happens to be, no exaggeration, one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament. So, exciting. I'm going to work really hard to be clear and accurate and kind of lay it out for you. But let me start it this way by just reminding you of something that you already know. There are only two systems of religion. Only two. It's very, very simple. Uh, the first system of religion is The trust in human effort that by what you do, what you say, where you go, how you behave in some way, you're going to earn your way to heaven. It's up to you. Even Christians can function this way or people who call themselves Christians. It's that system. The other system, the second phase, is very narrow and it's a faith in divine grace and inherent to those who believe in a faith of divine grace, you basically forsake all your own efforts, all of them. You rely exclusively on the gracious provision of God, which is not based on what you have done, but it's based on what? What God has done. That is so important. Listen, this is one of the most important things you can do today in sharing with people. Uh, Just start off with, are you one of those people who think that you're going to try to earn your way to heaven. Because that's what the entire world believes. But what the Bible teaches is, you'll never make it. To get to heaven, you got to be what? Perfect. And none of you are. And therefore, God has to do the work on your behalf. Your sin has to fall on Christ. You believe what He did in becoming a man, the God-man, dying on the cross, rising from the dead. And now... He can cover you in His righteousness, that perfect white robe of righteousness, so now you can stand in His presence now and forever in heaven because of not what you did, but because of what He did. Are you tracking with me? That's the other system. It's the system of faith and divine grace. And you might think that the ranks of those who believe in the religion of grace would be swelling with converts, correct? It's the easy way. I mean, you would guess that the religion where God does all the work, that's got to be more popular than the religion that teaches that you got to do your part, you got to work your way to heaven, correct? But you would be wrong. In fact, Chuck Swindoll puts it this way, there are vastly more people who are eager to work for their salvation than those who will trust Christ for it. The age-old belief that there ain't no free lunch dominates their thinking. Everybody distrusts giveaways. Are you with me on that? You give, somebody gives you something for free, you're like, what's the condition? Right? You and I live in a get-what-you-deserve culture. And that flies in the face of Christianity's receive-what-you-don't-deserve theology. Are you getting it? So this is why Paul is so disturbed. I mean, when you look at verse 20 of chapter 4, take a look at it. He says, I am Perplexed. You know what that means? I don't know what to say to you. This is the Apostle Paul who could say anything to anybody and he goes, I don't know what to say to you. How is it that you are walking away? You say, well, what's the big deal? Listen, they're not people who were given to a works mentality. They had heard the preaching by Paul on his first missionary journey that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. They had at least you know orally embraced it they were taught and welcomed a salvation that was only coming from the word of God and the work of Christ and now some of them are going I want to go back to the other system and he goes I don't know what to say to you how can you do that I mean like every church there are tares those who look like the real thing but they're not and they're going to move away from grace and adopt works but the wheat are confused The true believers are confused. So Paul's so exasperated, I'm perplexed. So Galatians four twenty-one through thirty-one presents Paul giving his final arguments against these false teachers and Judaizers. It's a theological argument. Chapters two, excuse me, three and four of Galatians is the theological section, and so like today in a uh, like an unbeaten attorney, a lawyer. Paul's going to use the Judaizers' own type of argument against them. He's going to basically straighten them out by the way that they would teach. And as he does so, he's going to impact you and I. Paul's going to ask you, which system do you follow? Again, an important and vital question for you to ask your non-Christian friends or people who are you think are pseudo-Christians. Ask them, what system are you a part of? Are you a part of the system where you're trying to work your way to heaven, be good enough, be holy enough, be, you know, light enough candles, say enough prayers? Or are you of the system that says, I'm completely trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on my behalf? Which one are you? The apostle divided the world into those two groups. He called one the slaves, working your way to heaven. You say, what's slavery about that? Look, let's, can we be practical for a second? Come on, were you with me? Let's be practical. If you're in a work system, what that means is that when you walk out, Gary, Colette, onto the parking lot, and and Colette, you're just a little edgy today, so you just nail Gary with a kind of comment, a little sin comes out, right? So if you're in a work system, now you've got to work your way back into God's favor. You're never free. But under grace, God has already forgiven that sin, And Gary being such a godly guy, oh, no big deal, Colette, I love you. You know, right? And you're not under that system of law. You're free. Because every single one of your sins, past, present, and future, is forgiven in Christ. Amen? That's what freedom is, friends. You're not trying to, oh, i got to earn it again. It's no, you're not. It's forgiven. You're cleansed. You're washed. So, The key question for your lost friends and for your own heart today, what system do you embrace? Now, interesting enough, as he divides the whole world into these two groups, the slaves are under law and outside of Christ, while Christians are free, and the contrast here is pretty dramatic. So Paul wrote this epistle to help the slaves of religion find true freedom in Christ. So if you've got friends who are under the slavery of religion, this is their epistle, and these are the questions you want to ask. And Galatians is a letter for anyone that you know who's enslaved to false religion. So Paul's going to pit grace against law, Sarah against Hagar, Isaac against Ishmael, the Abrahamic covenant against the Mosaic covenant, the heavenly Jerusalem against the earthly Jerusalem, and he's going to convince you there are only two systems, the whole world's religious systems and even the secular people's systems, And then Christianity. True faith in Christ and His finished work. So, one is faith in Christ and His divine accomplishment. Two, following any type of human achievement. I want you to read aloud with me. And boy, it's a tough passage to read aloud. Tough passage to understand. But you can do it. You're tough. So here we go. Start in verse 21 from your outline. Everyone together. Here we go, reading it. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves, she is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, she is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, barren woman, who does not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. You're going, what is he talking about here? That's my job today, so let's set the stage here, and you've got to go back to Galatia. You know that Paul went to Galatia, and that's modern-day Turkey, and he was preaching the gospel there, the gospel of the cross, the gospel of the resurrection, the gospel of the empty tomb, the gospel of the crucifixion, that salvation is by God's grace. He did it all. He loves you. It expresses mercy. It is through faith in your trust and surrender to Him, and it's in Christ alone. It's... You're trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ when He's on the cross and said, It is finished. It is finished. Amen? So, as a result of all those evangelistic efforts, there were, throughout the entire region, some churches that were planted. And shortly thereafter, though, some errant missionaries came and they decided they're going to correct Paul. Paul didn't have it right. And these men came from Jerusalem. They're known as Judaizers And they want Gentiles to become Jews, right, in order to become genuine Christians. So they're trying to add the law of Moses on top of the gospel of grace in Christ. Picture the grace of Jesus Christ as that beautiful angel food cake covered with just freshly made whipping cream, some toppings that you really like, and it's just gorgeous, you know, double layer, whatever. And then you take this giant cement cinder block of law and you are go, we're just going to layer that right on our cake here. What's it going to do to the grace cake? Anybody? It destroys it. That's exactly what they're doing. It was beautiful. God did it. And they're going, right there. And just reckon it with the law. So, under the influence Of this false teaching, the Galatians began to surrender their freedom. They're going to keep working their way to heaven. They're going to keep the Jewish traditions. They're going to follow the law. They're going to get circumcised. They're going to go to the Jewish festivals. I mean, in a modern context, it'd be like, ah, I'm going to get a tattoo that says, Jesus is all right by me. And then I'm going to go to a Christian concert, and I'm going to be right on. You know, God's going to love me because I got it. Well, we often do the same thing, do we not? That's why I suggested it. Sometimes we forget that being a Christian means liberty and not slavery. Students sometimes reduce their faith to a bunch of do's and don'ts. You know, a list of things. And even empty nesters will evaluate their spiritual health by what they've done for God in the past instead of what God has done for them in Christ and what He's currently doing. And sadly... Would you admit that everyone here is kind of like a recovering Pharisee? Anybody? Sure. And we're in constant danger of forgetting that we live by faith. We're not trying to earn our salvation. We don't have to keep earning His favor when we mess up. So in order to persuade the Galatians that they're free, free in Christ, free to obey the Word, free from bondage of sin, free from earning approval from God then he uses a legal argument. So number one in your outline, the cutting question. He starts with a cutting question. Again, when you're a Christian, you're not only justified, but you're regenerated, which means you have a heart that wants to obey. So it's not like you're going to go off the track and just live crazy. But you understand that you're not earning his favor anymore. It's already been given to you in Christ. So the cutting question, he sarcastically begins with this pointed question, verse 21, tell me, You who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Paraphrase, this would be, so you want to be under the law, do you? Well, do you have any idea what the law really says? Because if you did, you'd realize the law itself says, are you ready? you got to be perfect. Listen, when you put yourself under the law, that means you always have to obey everything in the law. Are you tracking with me? You can't just go, well, I'm going to obey this law and that law. When you say, I'm obeying the law, you've got 613 commands in the law that you must obey all the time. In order for you to get to heaven, would you say it with me? You have to be perfect. Is anyone in the room perfect? Kids, don't raise your hand. <laughs> no one is. Therefore, we're in trouble by going to a work system, are we not? Big trouble. Big trouble. So, Paul speaks to those who are unconvinced. They're still hanging on to the law as like somehow that makes me holy, it makes me religious. Like with white knuckles, they're grabbing onto this thing. And Paul says, Okay, you Judaizers and you Galatians who want to follow this system, pay attention. You think living by the law is the way to go. Great. Then do you hear what the law says? You got to obey all of it. And so Paul turns the premise against them. And he argues with these legalists on their own terms. Paul takes the example from the book of Genesis. Now, he uses the ultimate example. What he's doing here, he's using Abraham. Abraham is used in this letter eight times. You say, why? Because Abraham is the false teacher, Judaizer hero. And they think he's the one who's supporting their system And Paul realizes that, and so what he does is he teaches the truth about Abraham that Abraham is actually the ultimate example that salvation is by grace through faith. Abraham was made righteous by faith. And so Paul has been correcting their understanding, and he's going to continue to do so in this particular context. And so what he does is he, number two in your outline, gives the historical setting. The historical setting. The Judaizers were probably saying this. This is what the false teachers would say. They'd say, you know, when God made all his covenant promises and he said that they were all for Abraham and his children, they would say, well, we are Abraham's children because we're Jews, right? And we are the direct descendants through Isaac. But you Gentiles, you can receive that promise too. All you have to do is become a Jew like us keep the law, keep the promises, go to the festivals, get circumcised. What does Paul say? He answers that in verse 22. He says, "Uh-oh, he's going to take it a different direction now for it is written that Abraham had how many sons? Two sons, one from the slave woman and one from the free woman. And the son of the slave or the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, their way, got, you know, their way and the son of the free woman was through a promise that God had made. Now, you got to stay with me, all right? And and the moment your mind drifts today, you'll be really out of touch, okay? So stay with, make that oatmeal work for you today, and open your Bibles if you would. You got to have your Bible back to Genesis. We're going to be there for a little bit. Genesis 16, all right? Genesis 16. Genesis tells us that God makes a promise to Abraham that he's going to make him into a great nation. Abraham, though, how is he going to be a great nation? doesn't have any kids. His wife Sarah was barren, and Abraham's not getting any younger. And at this point, Abraham's in his 80s, and he's got an old wrinkled face, and he's got white hair or gray hair, wherever that comes from. And a hard, as it was on Abraham, is probably tougher for Sarah. Here she is looking for this promise, and yet she remains childless. So how is he going to be a great nation if she's childless? Finally, in bitter desperation, she said to her husband, look at Genesis 16, verse 2. Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, so please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. The maidservant, who was an Egyptian woman named Hagar, conceived and gave woman to a son named Ishmael. That's verse 15. Now turn to Genesis 17. God, though, even though they did this their way... God had not neglected his promise. So the Lord came to Abraham again in Genesis 17, verse 15. Look at it. seventeen, fifteen. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, you shall call her Sarah, shall be her name, and I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her, and then I will bless her, and she will be the mother of nations. All these people groups. Because God's promises are always true, and never fail. Remember that, would you? That Sarah shockingly conceived at the age of 90. 90, and she gave birth to a, a son named Isaac, in verse, chapter 21, stay in Genesis. Uh, there are many similarities between Ishmael and Isaac. They're both sons of Abraham. They both had the same biological father. They're both circumcised. They both grew up in the same home. Uh, In fact, they also had the same crucial differences between them. Uh, They were both circumcised, but one difference was their status in the eyes of the law. Uh, Although the boys had the same paternity, they had a different maternity, and from their respective mothers, they inherited two different legal standings. Ishmael's mother was a slave. So Ishmael was born a what? Slave. Isaac, on the other hand, was born free, the heir of the free woman. Uh, another crucial difference between the two half brothers was the manner of their births. Each son was born a different way, in that Galatians chapter 4, verse 23, Ishmael was born according to the flesh. The flesh here being our way, the way we do it, all right, not God's way. The phrase according to the flesh was repeated in verse 29, and that tells us that Ishmael was procreated in the ordinary way. But Isaac was not born according to the flesh, his birth was ordinary enough. But the circumstances surrounding his conception was extraordinary. Galatians chapter 4, verse 23, he was born through promise. And in verse 29 it says he was born according to the Spirit. So this is the distinction between Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac's birth was a result of God's supernatural intervention. Turn to Genesis 18 now, if you would. And when God promised Sarah a son, she thought, It was about the funniest thing she'd ever heard in her life. Come on, you could be so old, and you're thinking, I'm going to have a baby? Are you kidding me? Best joke ever, God. After all, she's already been through menopause, her personal summer. And so, Genesis 18.11, take a look at what it says. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing, verse 12. Sarah laughing to herself. Saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. And the answer to her question is, yes. Sarah may have been worn out, her husband may have been old, but God is faithful to keep his promises. Do you still believe that today? God keeps his promises, no matter what you're going through. You need to. He can have Sarah at 90 have a baby. He can take care of your problem. Through supernatural work of the Spirit, Abraham and Sarah produced a child born by God's promise. Now I'll go back to Galatians chapter 4, and as you do, let me read Hebrews 11:11. 11, 11, as you're going back there. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, and this is encouragement, since she considered Him, God, faithful, who had promised. So even though she laughed, she also did believe and trusted him. And now in Galatians chapter 4 verse 23, but the son of the bondwoman, the slave woman, was born according to the flesh, you know, the normal earthly way, and the son by the free woman through the promise that God had made. So according to the flesh means Ishmael's birth was motivated by error, Abraham and Sarah's lack of faith. Lack of faith in God's promise, fulfilled by normal means. But when it says through the promise here, he means that God's miraculously enabled Abraham and Sarah to have Isaac when Sarah was well past childbearing age and having been barren her entire life. So the story of Isaac and Ishmael, way more than sibling rivalry is at stake here. When Abraham got Hagar pregnant, now get this, he was operating on the principle, are you ready? God helps those who help themselves. Write it down because that's bad. That's bad. That's error. They're going to take care of it themselves. They, They were trying to take the blessing rather than waiting to receive it. Isaac was a gift. Ishmael is what Abraham got for trying to do things his way instead of God's way. Are you getting that? Ishmael is what Abraham got by trying to do things his way. Not God's way. For the very beginning, there's a fundamental difference, spiritual difference between the two sons. One was born by proxy, one was born by promise, one came by works, the other came by faith, one was a slave, one was free, thus Ishmael and Isaac represented the two different systems. Remember the cake? We got this incredible grace cake, and they're trying to put a brick of law on it, and it's wrecking it, and he's trying to describe both of those systems here, So Ishmael and Isaac represent two different approaches to salvation or religion, law and grace, flesh and spirit, self-reliance, Abraham doing it his way, or divine dependence, depending on God to accomplish it, right? You in the room here are depending on God to accomplish your salvation, can I hear an amen? amen? You are. You are not trying to work your way to heaven. You recognize that you can't be perfect. You'll never get there. God can't accept you. He's got to take care of that sin issue and that means Christ did it on your behalf. He takes the sin, all the wrath, you get his perfect righteousness. Tracking with me? That's what's at stake here. Faith in Christ's divine accomplishment or following after any type of human achievement. Number three in your outline. A familiar style of argument. A familiar style of argument. Now, The spiritual distinction between Isaac and Ishmael is a part of Abraham's story. It is literal history, and Paul wants to use these differences to prove the fallacy of salvation by human religious effort. And he does it in a powerful way. Now imagine that if you're a false teacher, and the only way that you could teach is you use a chalkboard. So you're just writing all your error on a chalkboard. Now, what Paul's going to do is he's going to take that same chalkboard and he's going to write the truth on it and prove that your system's wrong. Okay? He's using their methods. I'm just imagining something here. Imagine that the false teachers only teach by using poetry. So what would Paul do? He'd use better poetry to prove that their position is wrong and the biblical position is right. So, works are red, law is blue. If you're keeping teaching this, and then in eternity, you're through, all right? That's my poem for today. So the rabbis, for centuries, would use allegory, imagination. They discover things in the word that are not there. Listen, today we call this preaching the white spaces. You ever heard of a preacher, and he's just going for it, and you're listening, and you go, wow, that's so interesting, where did he get that? And you're looking at the Bible, and you can't find it there. We call that preaching the white spaces on the page. That's what it's doing. Well, that's what they did a lot, uh, the rabbis. And then in the 4th century, even in the early church, Origen and Augustine began to go down that road as well and began to allegorize scripture. So what they'd say, and let me give you some examples, they'd see a word like perfect, and a rabbi would go, perfect, well, circumcision is a perfect, so when he says perfect, that's what he means is circumcision. They would change the meaning of words. Or they'd say, look at the word water there. Well, the water, you know, there's a lot of attributes of water that's like the Holy Spirit. So when he's referring to the water or the lake or the ocean here, he really means the Holy Spirit. They would just come up with these meanings. Or they'd say a word used twice, you know, like Moses, Moses, or Robert, Robert. Robert means bright and shiny. So if he used it twice, what he means is the sun and the star. Isn't that good? Good preaching, right? Absolutely error should be thrown out. You should be going and walk out, okay? That's bad stuff. That's what Paul's going to do, but Paul is not going to allegorize. He's going to use a system that is an allegory style, but use literal people and littler history. Now, let me help you with the understanding of an allegory. Let me define it for you. An allegory is a fictional story where the real truth, the real lesson is a secret, mysterious, hidden meaning somewhere in the white spaces of the Bible it's not really there are you tracking with me? that's an allegory what Paul does is he uses an illustration from history using real people in an allegorical style to kind of like the the, the chalkboard to kind of really prove to them look, even this way you guys are all wet got it? That's what he's doing. So take a look at verse 24. He says, this is allegorical. he's speaking. I'm going to give you an illustration based in history. It's not really a true allegory because it's literal and it's historical. There's nothing made up. But these women are two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. So, this is not an allegory because it's not a fictional story where it's made up. This is True. Uh, An allegory that you might be familiar with would be Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody with me? Uh, There are characters in there, in this tale. Christian, faithful, hopeful. They're going to Doubting Castle and the Hill of Difficulty. And Bunyan was, was not writing history or geography. He's making up a fictional story to make a spiritual point. But the story of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac, is that real history or fake history? Real. So Paul is not really doing an allegory, he's just basically doing it in that style, and he's using it to just tell those false teachers, no matter how you approach this, you're wrong. So maybe you're asking me, Chris, should I be looking for allegorical meaning in the Bible? And my answer would be what? No! And now maybe if you say, well, I am a chosen apostle of Jesus Christ, inspired to write the scripture myself, then maybe, maybe we'd start to listen to you. But otherwise, if you're not that person, we don't have the right to mess with God's word. Anybody say amen to that? We've got to let the Bible speak for itself. Every passage has one, only one correct meaning. And that's, <laughs> thank you, and that's discovered by determining the author's intended meaning, Using sound rules of interpretation, normal, literal, context, history, original languages, agrees with the rest of Scripture, and that's what Paul does here. So what does he say? Look at verse 24 to 26. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar, and this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Let me explain it, all right? You got two covenants. Paul uses two mothers, two sons, two locations as a further illustration of the grace cake and the law brick. Right? He's basically giving you those comparisons, so when he uses Hagar, Ishmael, Mount Sinai, representing the earth of Jerusalem, that represents the covenant of, of law, that you're working your way to heaven, you're trying to be saved that way. Sarah, Isaac, and the heavenly Jerusalem is the covenant of promise, and that means that you're basically trusting in the finished work of Christ. One is fake, one is real. One is free, one is enslaved. One is faith, one is works. One is, are you ready, of God, and the other one is yourself. Again, another question. Please file this away. Ask this question out of love. Say, are you trying to actually work your way to heaven? You're trying to do it yourself? That's a great question. Are you trying to work your way to heaven? Are you trying to earn it? Because the Bible teaches you can't. God has to do it for you. God has to accomplish. And he did it through his son, Jesus Christ. By sending the God-man to please God and to substitute for us, he could bear all of God's wrath, take the punishment that we deserve for sin, rise from the dead, cover us in his righteousness, and we can be right before God now and forever. Right? Because we entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ. Did we work for it? Yes or no? Oh, whoa, 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 wait. I need a little bit more from you did we work for it thank you kids thank you no it was it's a gift that we're receiving and trusting so Paul continues with his childhood chalkboard illustration and he says in verse 25 Mount Sinai now Again, a simple appropriate symbol of the Old Covenant because Mount Sinai is where Moses received the what? The law in Exodus 19. The salvation by self, working away to heaven. Hagar, a perfect woman to illustrate the old way, the, the way of works, the Old Covenant, Since the Old Covenant meant slavery to the law and Hagar was a slave. Furthermore, all her children were slaves, like Ishmael, and they are both tied to Mount Sinai, so Ishmael's descendants settled there. So anyway, anyone who is still in bondage to legalism, law-keeping, is one of Hagar's spiritual children. The cake. You're putting a brick on the cake, Galatians. You're saying, I'm going to take this giant cinder block and go, it's going to work with grace, and it's going to destroy it. The punchline comes in verse 25. Take a look. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but Jerusalem above is free, she is our mother. When Paul mentions Jerusalem, he's speaking not only geographically, but spiritually here, and he's basically saying Jerusalem stands for God's people, in this case, the Judaism of Paul's day. And Paul may have also mentioned Jerusalem because the Judaizers came from Jerusalem. So these Jewish legalists who come from Jerusalem, wanting the Galatians to add law, add that to the gospel. And in verse 25, Paul said that Jerusalem corresponds to Hagar. He's saying that although, now get this, this is so powerful. Although the Judaizers were Jews, who thought, I'm a Jew, and I'm through the line of Isaac, Paul is saying, "You're really an Ishmaelite." That's what he's saying. This is a shocker. Calling a Jew a Gentile, calling an Israeli an Arab. Yowza! Hey, this morning, are you an Ishmaelite? You look like a real Christian. You act like it. You speak like it. You kind of live a little bit of a moral life. But you're not really trusting in Christ and you're not really born again. You haven't been transformed by Him. You're not wanting to follow Him, not because you have to, because you want to. Listen, don't be an Ishmaelite. Tell your children today no Ishmaelites. Make sure the Judaizers prided themselves on being the true sons of Abraham, and though Paul admits that Abraham's children they are physically, he's saying, "You are spiritually illegitimate. You're an Ishmaelite, you're not an Isaac line, you're in the Ishmaelite line. And he reasoned, if you give up the gospel and you go back under the law. Not only are you putting that cement brick on the cake, you're proving yourselves to be a son of Hagar rather than the children of Sarah. And that meant they're still in spiritual bondage. The contrast on the other side of this illustration is Sarah was never a slave. Abraham's wife was a free woman and the son born to her by promise was Isaac who is also free. And Sarah represents this new covenant, this new promise, this new way of salvation which is not a covenant of law but a promise that God accomplished it, and the promise is this. Salvation is by grace through faith. Abraham, say it, was reckoned righteous by what? Faith. In this promise, the new covenant, God doesn't say thou shalt do this, or thou shalt not do that. He doesn't say that. Are you ready? You know what God says under the, the promise of salvation? This is so good. God says, I will. I will be your God. I will redeem you from your sins. Listen, you should leave her today with just the corner of your mouth with a slight smile because every single sin that you have ever committed will commit today and have ever and will commit in the future has been covered, washed, judged, punished, And taken care of by the finished work of Jesus Christ. How can you not be happy? I know you're going through tough stuff. I know that people in this room are really going through sometimes health issues, financial issues, relational issues. Listen. The bottom line is you're right with Jesus Christ. You're right with God. And that foundation can never be taken away from you. No matter what goes on. And so, this new covenant is the gospel, and it gives salvation by grace through faith through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this new promise does not match with the present city of Jerusalem. In fact, look what he says, verse 26 the Jerusalem above is free, she's our mother. This is because the new Jerusalem is not just for the future but it's, God's already starting to build that eternity city now, so the new Jerusalem has replaced the now Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem has replaced the now Jerusalem. Spiritual Jerusalem has superseded the earthly Jerusalem. And if we belong to God's family by faith, we are free in Christ. We are citizens of the new Jerusalem, enjoying the freedom of that eternal city. And then he adds that those who are citizens of heaven are free from the Mosaic law, Free from works, free from trying to always earn God's favor every time you mess up. You're free from tirelessly and endlessly trying to please God from your own strength. Are you getting that? That's what freedom is. You mess up, you sin, you blow it. You're not trying to, i got to earn His favor again. I am in His family forever. And so those who are the citizens of heaven... Is when you say that, it's when Paul says, She is our mother, he means that believers are children of the heavenly Jerusalem, the mother city of heaven. In contrast to the slavery of Hagar's children, believers in Christ are now fully free. Are you free? Thank you. John eight thirty six. If the Son has made you free, you will be what? Free indeed. Romans 6.18, having been freed from sin, you now become slaves of righteousness. So to review, two mothers, two sons, two covenants, two cities, two families. Look at the comparison. One is human achievement, the brick that wrecks the cake. One is based on divine accomplishment, that beautiful cake of grace. Look at the difference. Slavery, Hagar, a slave woman, freedom, Sarah, a free woman. Ishmael, born according to the flesh. Isaac, born according to the promise. The Mosaic covenant of law based on works. The covenant of promise based on faith. The present Jerusalem, Judaism. The Jerusalem above, (laughs) the heavenly Jerusalem and those in Christ. Children of the present Jerusalem are legalists. The children of the Jerusalem above are lovers. Righteousness comes by law. Righteousness and freedom comes by faith. The illustration is showing you the difference... Between spiritual slavery and spiritual freedom. And those who try to justify themselves by keeping the law are slave children of Hagar. You're an Ishmaelite. Done your way, not God's way. But those who are justified by faith in Christ are God's free sons and daughters. Whenever Paul thought about the joy of freedom of Christ, he breaks up in song. And this time he uses Isaiah. Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah 54, verse 1 and verse 27. And he says, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud. You who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now this quotation involves both. It's a good one because it involves Sarah and Jerusalem. And the connection to Sarah is obvious. She's the barren woman. God blessed her with a rejoicing multitude of sons and daughters. God did. And yet Isaiah prophesied about this barren woman. He wasn't thinking primarily of Sarah. He's thinking about Jerusalem. And the now Jerusalem of this day that he quotes here is barren because everybody's been taken away in the Babylonian captivity as Isaiah is prophesying. But his promise is that one day the new Jerusalem would be more filled with sons and daughters than the old Jerusalem could ever contain. Are you with me on that? Heaven's going to be fuller than the, new, the, the, the current Jerusalem of today. And Isaiah's happy promise here is being fulfilled at the very moment. In fact, not in an earthly city, but in a spiritual city. And men and women and children who come to faith in Jesus Christ, it, it's because they're citizens of heaven, the new Jerusalem, to the praise of glory. You understand this. I know this. Eschatologically, God's going to redo the earth. He's got a new Jerusalem called heaven and that new Jerusalem is going to come to earth and it's going to all be the heavenly city and earth together. That's what he describes for us and we're going to be all a part of that and that's going to be so much greater than this other existing Jerusalem. So, here we are. Let's conclude. What is your approach to the law? What is your approach to the law? Are you smug? And look at what that means. Law obeying and law relying. Are you getting that? You obey the law, but you're also relying on the law to save you. You're working your way. You're smug. You go, I got it. Okay, I'm going to get there. But inside, there's probably a little bit of insecurity because you're going, you know, I got to keep doing this because I got to keep doing being perfect. I got to keep making it right with God. I'm, I'm not really free. So secondly, are you insecure? What does that mean? Well, you're law disobeying, you admit it, and, and you're law-relying. You're still relying on the law to get you there, but you realize that you're not perfect, so you're even more insecure. So what you would do is, you might be one of those people who you're trying to earn your way to salvation here, and, uh, but you don't want to be close to anybody because you don't want anybody to see what's really going on in your life, so you're insecure about it. So you kind of stay aloof. These are the aloof ones, insecure. Well, our youth, vague, which means law disobeying, and not law-relying. Now, that means you don't really care. (laughs) Uh, You've got a vague spirituality. You largely choose to your own moral standards. You know, whenever you think it's right, it's right. When you think it's wrong, it's wrong. (coughs) Excuse me. And you're usually happier than group one and two, the insecure and the smug. But again, you're trying to earn your own salvation, and you're feeling superior to other people. (coughs) But number four... Are you spirit filled? That means you're law obeying, but you're not relying on the law to save you. Why do you obey the law? Because you have a heart that wants to. God changed your heart. And so these are Christians, and they obey the law of God out of a gratefulness and out of a new born again heart. And you're free from fear because you don't have to earn your salvation. You're not trying to obey the law to please God at this point, you're spirit filled because you want to walk in His light and His love, the question is, which one are you? I'm trying to be def- defined here so people understand. Listen, Christians do obey, but we obey because we want to. We obey because we have a heart that desires to. Romans 6, 17, we have a heart that wants to obey. So are you there? But you're not relying on the law to save you, but you're, relying on the, you're basically obeying the law so I can please my Heavenly Father and love Him and walk according to his word, but I'm not trying to earn my salvation. Where are you at? Not, not Letter B, are you encouraged by the example of Sarah? Sarah is a huge encouragement for those of you who see yourself as a failure. Anybody see yourself as a failure? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> you know, in ancient times, a woman's worth was essentially considered entirely in her ability to bear children. That's not what the Bible teaches, but even in our modern day, single or childless women often feel stigmatized and useless without kids, as if they failed in some way. But the Bible shows us here we should not make children our life any more than we should make our career, our money, our power, our approval, our identity in our life. You know what the gospel does? The gospel screams at you. You're loved. You're under the mercy of God. You're under the grace of God. Would you say amen to that? It's true. Listen, Jesus Christ, come on, suffered and died for you. For you. The gospel screams you're massively loved. And your life is under his perfect leadership whatever you're going through, it's guided by His wisdom. It's guided by His love. He never makes a mistake. So your heart, your joy, your identity is not found in having more or having kids or not having kids or getting what you want or finding singles, that perfect relationship or even if we could just get through this and get better circumstances, it's not there. Your satisfaction is to be in Christ. That you're washed, you're ready for heaven, no matter what. And those of you who do will bear great fruit. You'll know great joy. You'll always have a little corner of your lip ready to smile because your identity is in Jesus Christ. Is your identity in Christ? And does everybody know it? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You again for Your Word. Thank You for this time. We pray that Your Word would do its work in our lives And Father, that you would be honored. Maybe you would work in someone's heart to draw them to yourself. For the rest of us, that we would rely on what you have done and rest in what you have done and recognize that trying to work our way to heaven and try to earn your favor is a waste of time. It's throwing a cinder block on a perfect cake. Help us to not be like the Galatians but to trust in your grace and your mercy and your love and live by your spirit. And we'll give you all the praise and thanks for what you'll do in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.